if we want to be representative of the patient populations we serve, we have to figure out ways to do things differently. Otherwise, it's going to be the same, the same, the same. With all the buzz of new innovations, it's easy to forget that healthcare is a people business in need of technology, not a technology business in need of people. From the organizers of health, we bring you Live at Vive, a podcast where we embark on curious conversations with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators in the trenches of healthcare. Join hosts, Dr. Gotham Gulati, Jessica Shepard, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we seek to uncover the truth behind the inner workings of our fractured healthcare system and ultimately how we can fix it together. On today's episode, we bring you Dr. John Krauss, where we discuss the future of drug development and clinical trials. Dr. Krauss is the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Otsuka, where he's responsible for steering the organization and progressing the pipeline from development through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dr. Gotham Gulati. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the Vive podcast. I'm Dr. Gotham Gulati. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jessica Shepard. Glad to be here again. That's great. Good to be back in this booth. And we have with us today, John Krause from Otsuka Pharmaceuticals. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know who you are and what you're working on, maybe a good place to start is to tell us what you're up to. Sure. So as you so kindly pointed out, I'm John Krause. I am the chief medical officer at Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, OPDC, is is what our abbreviations are in the US. I've been at Otsuka about almost a year and a half, or two years come July, I would say, and have been chief medical officer for about four months now. My background is I'm a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. I've been in academic, clinical, pharmaceutical research from the bench all the way to patients for about 25 years now. And what brought me to Otsuka is really the continued passion that the company has for addressing unmet needs in difficult to treat areas. So we're, as many people know, we're in CNS. Some of the medicines you may be aware of are Arapiprazole or Illify and Brexpiprazole, Rexulti. And we're also in nephrology with a rare kidney disease, the only treatment for autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, GenRQ or Tolvaptin. So tackling the hard problems in areas that I'm passionate about, including CNS, mental health is is why I'm here. Well, you kind of took my thunder because (laughs) I was very impressed with your 25-year history. And I think because the history is so broad in the sense of how we see medicine and health, you've really done a wide breadth of, I guess you can say, interactions as well as innovation and that really lends to, again, not just a disease state, but how you can turn yeah. that into the experience that patients have, being able to connect to them, being an MD and a PhD. Now, I did do a little bit of my research here. And one of the things that you guys pride yourselves on is respecting the value within every mind. And for you specifically, dedicating to advancing the healthcare landscape and creating a better future for patients. When you take that last part of it, creating a better future for patients, how would you say that if you had carte blanche on how you would like to do that? 
That's a great question. And, and I look at it, how we approach the problems we attempt to solve at Otsuka. It's really thinking about where are the areas that we know the space well, but we also understand where is that unmet need? Where are the gaps in treatment? It's no longer good enough like it was when I was in residency to have five different drugs of the same class doing the same thing and hoping the best marketing would drive use. What drives use, what drives acceptance is meeting that unmet need, meeting the patients where they are. And it's of critical importance. I mean, a, a, an example of a development program we've done recently, there's actually two I, I can talk about. We're currently in the midst of a submission for Rexalti or Rexpeprazole for agitation and Alzheimer's dementia, which is a huge problem. Most people who have a family member or relative with Alzheimer's has experienced this. I mean, my memory of this goes back to when I was in medical school visiting my grandmother and my grandfather, who was an introvert, family gatherings, he used to like just sit in the corner and then listen to music at the end. And, and you know, nice enough guy, very quiet. He developed Alzheimer's. He's at the table as I'm talking about things with my grandmother. He says words I've never heard him say before, bangs on the table, gets up, runs outside. I have to follow him, bring him back. And I had to talk to my grandmother. You can't do this anymore. It's very difficult. So to be at a company now where we're trying to see if our medication may help and provide some benefit in this group, that's important. A flip side that is maybe more in line with some of the interests of the folks at Vive is we've collaborated with Click Therapeutics on a digital therapeutic, CT-152. We just completed something called the Mirai trial which is an application on your phone. Every time I say application, people can't see this. I always have to touch my phone. I don't know why. <laughs> but that is a sort of cognitive emotional training that patients who are already on antidepressant and not fully responding can use over the course of time for improvement. And this gets to some of what we were talking about on, in the panel I was at, Vive, is how do we ensure access to trials? How do we ensure equity? How do we ensure diversity? One way is to make the treatments actually on something that patients already have. So that can be digital therapeutics, but there are a number of other ways that we're thinking about Otsuka to really enhance that patient experience and make sure that the drugs we study are actually representative of the population that has the diseases. I mean, that sounds so fluid as it comes out of your mouth, but we all know in the industry how hard that really is yeah. to to accomplish. And so I think, you know, keeping that at the forefront really keeps it top of mind and, and top of conversation. One more kind of guilty or selfish rather question that I have is being in the medical field and seeing how innovation has really kind of forced its way in for, for good measure. Where do you see, as you just said, the application when we think of therapeutics, applications, apps, et cetera, from a digital perspective? interacting with what we see as pharma? Yeah. So this is a good question. And we were talking about this earlier. When I think of innovation, I don't, don't think of innovation as a word. It's, it's a way of approaching a problem. So the key thing we have to do first is define what is that problem we're trying to solve? What are we trying to accomplish? And then we should be somewhat agnostic about what's the best way to accomplish that. And it may be a digital therapeutic, or it may actually be a companion app that is paired with a pharmaceutical agent to get better effects than either one alone. And when we talk about innovation in the digital space, 
it can be quite broad. When I think of it from an R&D perspective, there are those ways I've mentioned, so a direct therapeutic companion app. But importantly also is how can we better select patients for trials? How can we better subdivide common diseases that are clearly heterogeneous, but we define them by clusters of symptoms that may be informative, but maybe aren't definitive? So how do we begin approaching things like digital biomarkers, be they passive use of a phone to gather information that way, be they active use of some device on your wrist, or even as, as significant a device as an EEG assessment or a certain fMRI assessments, et cetera. But how do we make this simpler and more predictive? So one thing I'm very interested in and, and I'm working with my team is to begin to assess are there certain tools out there that exist already to solve the problem of the right patients, early decision-making? Can you use these biomarkers to gauge efficacy, for example? And early decision-making isn't just to move things forward. It's also to stop things at the right time. For everything we continue to develop that won't work, it's an opportunity cost. So how do we speed that up? How do we accelerate? So to expand on that a little bit, I, I mean, this is like a classic Clay Christensen jobs to be done type of approach to innovation. I think, you know, having been in the, in the life sciences world for a number of years and, and seeing how organizations function, typically a lot of the incumbents typically take a, you know, we're a drug company that happens to, you know, that seeks to a, a population to serve versus the way you guys are thinking about it. We're sort of a people company yeah. and trying to understand what the problems are and, and then how do we develop a solution that best fits their need. So my question related to that is most traditional life sciences companies aren't in the digital business element of things. So how, I mean, it's not necessarily in your wheelhouse to understand that element of things. Yeah. So how do you, how do you factor that in? Is that something that you develop the expertise in house? Do you partner with others? So this is a great question. So, you know, our, our motto is we define limitations so others can too. So defying limitations should mean you're not tied into conventional approaches or thinking. Now, that may be the right approach for a certain problem, but maybe it's not. So when we think about digital innovation, I think the most reasonable way, again, is to find that problem, search for the solutions, and understand who's best at it. So partnering is a big part of what we've done at Otsuka for years. From the very first product that was discovered by Otsuka scientists, Abilify, Aripiprazole, partnered with BMS, all the way through today as we're partnering with Synovian on next-generation schizophrenia drugs. The Mirai trial for CT-152 was a collaboration we also did with Verily, using their baseline platform for patient recruitment, patient identification, trial execution, fully remote trial. But we leveraged the expertise at Verily. Verily. We bring a lot to them as well. We understand the needs for a clinical program from a regulatory perspective, compliance perspective, they understand the technology aspects and also admittedly are, are far ahead in, in the areas I just discussed as well. Amy Abernathy, their chief medical officer is outstanding. It's that partnership. We have partnerships with Amazon in terms of how we can maybe speed up our, our clinical study reports and our submissions. We're not satisfied just to say, yeah, we've done this pretty good. We're done. But you can't do that alone. You need the people with the right skill sets, the right thinking. We have internal expertise there as well. So we have experts internally on AI, machine learning, all these things I'll never 
fully understand, but they can explain it to me. They can work with our partners. They can do that due diligence to make sure we're bringing in the right groups. Well, it's exciting to hear that you're actually taking that approach and thinking about it that way because not many organizations have. You said you've been at Atsuko for two years now? Yeah, two years in July. So I don't want to oversell it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm just trying to think back over the course of the last two years. I mean, business as usual no longer exists, right? The world of how we look at clinical trials, how we discover new compounds, new drugs, the way digital has infused itself. And now we've got AI layers. I'm curious, how are you processing all of that? And what, you know, how does that impact the way you guys do business today? Sure. I think what's important about being in in science, being in drug development, working with our discovery collaborators and partners is we share a trait that we don't want to get bored. The few times I've changed careers is I'm getting bored. I have no real career path other than to keep my brain not bored. (laughs) And Otsuka is really excellent at that, I can say right now. So that's one thing is this openness to approaches that may at face value say, well, no one's done that before, or we shouldn't think that way. You know, Atsuka pioneered the first digital medicine in my site, which actually tracked patient medicine use. And now we're going forward with the digital therapeutics. So I think you process it by just, again, going back to the root is we're trying to solve a problem. What's the best way? Do you feel do you feel threatened at all by some of the emerging players coming into the space? No, I don't feel threatened threatened. I feel invigorated and excited. What you'll also see, and I won't name any names, but as as some of these technologies are nascent or the data sets being used aren't necessarily the best ones, the concept around using machine learning, AI to find new targets, to find new drugs is very promising, but no one has the full package yet. I think that will happen down the line. It's, it's already actually happened in different ways as we had advances in the structural protein biology and actually looking at, actually identifying how ligands bind to proteins was a huge technological leap that allowed us to actually intelligently design drugs. We'll have similar aspects here. The interesting part may be how the data came together to give us an answer or a target we may not actually fully understand. The process behind that as we talk about AI and machine learning, which I find exciting in a strange way. <laughs> wanted to ask you a question of your very short history in medicine, because I think you finished residency maybe, what, five years ago? <laughs> I, I finished residency in 2001. I, I can admit that, but I did a PhD, <laughs> so I was even older than most of the other people. <laughs> but in, you know, even thinking of when I was training on how we think about disorders when it comes to mental illness is is much different how we approach it now. And I wanted to read you a a statistic on when we think of digital therapeutics. There are more than 500 digital therapeutic clinical trials that were done between Mm. 2010 and 2019. And more than 40% of those trials were done in areas defined as mental health, including psychiatry, addiction, neurology, and sleep medicine. So if you were to, you know, look back at how we trained, how we diagnosed, how we treated, what is maybe your most profound outlook on what we do now, including you know your role, as well as what we see on how we train our, our future doctors? This is a, a great question, and, and I hate to sound a bit pessimistic, but I will, because we're talking about mental illness and we're talking about U.S. healthcare. 
mental health care is still highly fragmented in the U.S. It's still, despite being illegal based on parity, it, it is still often treated differently than other diseases. Stigma has de decreased. I will say there's a positive trend in that direction. Some of that has come from the shared experience around COVID and difficulties folks face there. Some has come from individuals willing to, to own up to their own struggles with mental health issues. But in reality, until very recently, many of the medicines that we use to treat mental health are based on mechanisms we've known since the 50s and 60s. There's been improvements along the line, and typically in terms of adverse event profiles, but not necessarily in efficacy. The digital approach is actually quite interesting from a therapeutic approach because it doesn't just get out of a different way of treating. Because we all know non-pharmacological approaches change the brain. Otherwise, you would have no learning. Otherwise, you'd have no memory. And with psychotherapy, we've seen it with functional MRIs. We've seen it with PET scans, things of that nature. The thing is, though, if we look at where patients are compared to where practitioners are and where the standard of care, because we do have standards of care around all these, can be delivered, there are islands where there are no practitioners or practitioners who may be doing their best, or what I called in the past the good enough model, with what they know. But they may not be experts at cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. It may be more supportive therapy. So an app that actually has strong evidence that is studied appropriately, and this is a discussion we can have also because many of those apps you talked about, the level of evidence varies greatly. How you control outcomes varies greatly. But with a good app that shows a, a reasonable benefit, and typically they have low risk, that can be deployed to persons wherever they are, not wherever the psychiatrist sits or this master of social work who's a great therapist, but is in Philadelphia and not in Terrell County, North Carolina. Can you share some examples around some of those digital therapeutics? I'll, I'll talk about the one we we're working on with Click CT152. It shows some of the strengths, I think, of maybe a traditional pharmaceutical company approaching a digital therapeutic in that the design of the trial was quite rigorous. So there is no real clear standard of evidence that's required for clearance of some of these devices. There's no clear definition of what that placebo group or sham group might look like, things of this nature. And the way this application works is it kind of harnesses both cognitive and emotional aspects of neurocircuitry that are involved in depression. And it's kind of like a brain training exercise where there's a, a couple of things. There's a, a recognition of certain facial expressions, but also having memory in mind of, did you see that how many faces ago? Have you seen this face before, et cetera? So it's a cognitive task associated with affective or emotional component. So what was very clever, I thought, is the design of the sham there just had the cognitive task, none of the emotional. So the patient still had to do something. They still had to interact with the app. They probably still thought there was something going on. And we were able to control that study to show, yes, it takes both things for efficacy. Now, we're in the midst of sharing those results in the future. I really can't talk much about it other than it's a fairly exciting 
time to be <laughs> in, in. Yeah, you can you can share it here. We won't tell anybody. <laughs> now, how does a how does a business model work around something like that? Because now that's a different question, and you'll have to get my colleagues sent. You know, I mean, uh, is it a SaaS based approach? Because it's not your traditional. You know, so the, the, I think the business models hasn't been established yet for digital therapeutics, and there are many ways you can approach it from a, a, a traditional to actually more innovative. And Sankit Shaw, who is our head of our digital business unit, is thinking through these issues right now. So that's a plug for him to come on a guest at some point, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'd love, we'll get I'd love <laughs> to get probe into that. Sure. If you were to, to look at where we are currently in the therapeutics of this space versus where we would want to be, you know, in Utopia, when you look at the stakeholders, such as providers, payers, insurance, patient advocates, what do you think has the, maybe the largest stakeholder in all of this and moving the wheel forward to where we want to be? Yeah, I think it's true for, for most diseases, but let's speak in, in, in terms of mental illnesses and mental health. I think what would be a game changer is having some way to predict with better clarity whether a patient might respond to a given treatment or not. So as it stands today, you may have a patient go through an adequate trial of a medicine, which can be anywhere from two to four weeks at the appropriate dose. And at the end of the time, you say, no, that didn't work. Let's go to the next one. You repeat again. Nope, maybe we add on. So 30% of patients with depression, for example, still end up not having full treatment, which is, again, why we study this with Abilify and Rixolti is, is can we help those patients? But there's more that can be done there. And I think trying to understand some of the individual variables that may be associated with treatment response for specific treatments is important. What I was talking about earlier with the potential of digital biomarkers or traditional biomarkers is, can you enhance the patient population such that those who take the risk of getting any medicine or treatment are the ones who are most likely to benefit? And we just don't have that sophistication yet in treatment of mental health. And indeed, for many medical illnesses, actually, oncology is very much a a biomarker-based approach. Hypertension, not so much. Right. That's what I was just about to ask you is, you know, do you think historically we've been approaching mental illness as this systolic over diastolic approach where the expected outcome is very black and white and the gray areas were so missed that we didn't know, you know, the efficacy in the broad landscape and the variety of how people respond was being so missed that potentially we were not treating people from a drug perspective, if you just want to, you know, look at pharma in the way that we should have. I do think that's true because the effect size for some medicines aren't as large as we want them to be. For others, they're actually quite large because either it's easier to select the patients or they're more likely to have a a similar genetic background. But I think depression is a good example where there are probably a number of variables that contribute to depression. You know, you know, one interesting thing is when interferons began to be used for MS, one of the adverse events was depression. You could actually exogenously induce what was indistinguishable from the medical condition by giving, you know, for want of a better word, a drug that 
affected the inflammatory system. The funny thing is you could actually prevent that with an SSRI. So it doesn't mean that all of our depression is caused by changes in inflammation, although there are investigations that have gone on in that. There are data to, to support some of that. Maybe for some patients that's important, but we don't know which patients they are yet. And those findings are usually at a population level. They're not fantastic. So I think we need better biomarkers and better understanding of these diseases. I want to shift topic on something. So if you want to stick to that. <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you shift. Well, I, 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 wanted, <laughs> I wanted to shift focus a little bit on affordability and accessibility. Mm. Big topics right now. And I'm curious, how does Atsuka look at health equity, you know, given either upstream or downstream? So looking at some of your clinical trial research and development and how you shrink those timelines, because if we can reduce that cost, we can then pass those cost savings on and also on the front lines of things. Like, how do you guys think about that? I, I think one thing that's really impressed me since coming to Atsuka is our patient experience, patient assistance program. So for example, the the medicine I mentioned earlier, tolvaptin for rare disease, autosomal dominant, polycystic kidney disease, the support that we provide for patients, our goals to limit their exposure to cost, I think have been really important in ensuring that the patients that need it get it. So there's really, it's not just at the front end, it's also once the medicine is available, how do we allow help with access? particularly when this is the only drug out there that's proof of that indication. There are others. Now, I want to go back to something I said earlier. When we talk about price, again, this is my area of expertise, but price is tied to value. So are you providing a real value to patients? Are you a variation on a theme? Are you- The value to patients, it's very subjective, right? I mean, that's- So again, I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm simple. What we think about- is when we try and think about what indications we should go into. We're doing this process now as we're thinking about our CNS and our nephrology business, is where's that white space? Where is that unmet need? Where do we have gaps? Because many patients respond to the treatments that already exist. We don't want to replace those with something that doesn't give extra value. So the value is defined with what is missing. When you articulate that value, though, and I think this might be when you're, what you're getting at it a little bit, and I, I've always loved this research. If you, if you talk to the physician group and you talk to the patient group about what's most important, mm-hmm. the top three are usually never the same. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but you got to talk to the patients. So we also feel it's important as we begin to understand these disease is to go directly to the patient voice and the patient experience either through advocacy groups or through patients themselves, because the insights that you're going to get are a lot different. So yeah, that's how we just, I would define value is where's that unmet need that we see from a scientific medical perspective? How does that line up with what our patients are telling us and the clinicians are telling us? But we see, you know, some of my concerns around, I mean, you're right, the value as it pertains to the individual stakeholders, right? From the physician to the patient versus the pharmaceutical company. They're all different for the most part. There might be some overlaps here and there. But, you know, if if we start going after like niche indications, smaller populations, Mm -hmm. nothing else on the market, and then we start defining things like, well, what is an additional six months of your life worth? What is an additional, you know, like it's, it's a really complicated 
measurement yeah. of, of value that's always in the eye of the beholder, whoever's receiving it. Yeah. But how do we ensure that we don't break the bank when it comes to defining I, value? I, I think it's fair. So let, let me back up a little. Because pr- pricing has been a real issue as of late, right? A big topic of conversation, especially, and especially around some of the Alzheimer's drugs. When I talk about unmet need, it's not necessarily niche or rare. In fact, if we think about schizophrenia, for example, it's a good example. Virtually every patient has cognitive symptoms associated with schizophrenia, even when their psychosis is under control. There is no approved treatment to help patients with their cognitive disabilities and schizophrenia. So that's one example that would affect 1% of the population, given that schizophrenia is a common disease. So, But you're right. Some have gone to plays in the past with rare diseases for the price point. I, I think, again, my goal from the R&D perspective is can I create an evidence package that shows the value of whatever we're trying to create? And if I'm not able to do that, then we can't even get covered or market access without the right evidence. And it's not always going to be a clinical trial. We have to think about cost effectiveness in addition to just overall cost. What is the actual benefit to a healthcare system rather than an individual? All these come into play. And we have members of my team that are involved in all aspects of this during drug development. I'm always curious, most organizations that have been around for a number of years, like Atsuka, usually don't, aren't forced to change unless there's something in the marketplace that sort of pushes in that, that direction. I'm curious, in, in your view, I mean, there's dozens of things that have happened over the past you know, five, six years. What has been sort of the greatest motivation or trigger for you doing things differently and approaching the problems differently? Yeah, th- th- this is a great question because Otsuka is an example we had our 100th anniversary of a company. And one thing the company likes to say is we want to be in business forever. And you can't be in business forever if you're doing the same thing over and over and over. You should be in the business of trying to put yourself out of business, right? I mean, if you ultimately... Yes. So (laughs) you get me excited here. Now now he's falling asleep. The levels were too loud there. (laughs) When I talk about my role in my job is, my role in my job is to make myself obsolete. So I want to build talent around me. I want the next generation to come up. Can we think of treatments that make other treatments obsolete because we've advanced the care that much? So that sort of thinking can drive your creativity and can drive the way you approach risk. But it has to be tempered. So using tools to de-risk early, to make decisions early, that might not be endpoints you use for regulators, but endpoints that we can use to make decisions to accelerate quickly or kill quickly, depending on the process, are, are as important as that other creativity around defining targets and defining the unmet need, how we do clinical trials. I mean, what we talked about some today in the panel was really around decentralized trials, allowing access to a broader number of people based on where the location is, for example, having hours of a study that aren't nine to five. I mean, if we want to be representative of the patient populations we serve, we have to figure out ways to do things differently. Otherwise, it's going to be the same, the same, the same. So that's what's exciting as well. It's not just, I get all excited about the scientific aspect, the medical care, but how we then execute and deliver the trials, the patient experience, the reduction as much as we can on on burden, And there's practical reasons to make trials less complex, less of a placebo response, for example, in in certain illnesses. That's exciting as well. The science of executing trials is critically important, I think. What 
I guess you could say, challenges when you think of clinical trials in this space particularly, do you see, not necessarily just within you know your company, but other companies who are trying to tackle some of the same outcomes? Yeah. So the, the challenges are, some are disease related. So in uh, psychiatric and neurologic conditions, placebo effect can be large because what we talked about earlier, non-pharmacological treatments can help. You go into a clinical trial, you're probably getting more attention than you've ever had for that illness in your life. So we have to factor that in and, and make sure that your drug has a real effect that you can discern from placebo. And what does that mean? But the, the other challenges are, how can we, based on where we're developing our drug, look like the population we serve? And it's not just the population we serve from a baseline demographics, it's the epidemiology of the disease which can vary from disease to disease to disease. So how do we ensure that we get that right balance and that representation? So one thing I'm sure you're, you're very well aware of is in the US, we're on the backbone of decades of systemic healthcare inequity. I think I can still say that, although there may be laws against that down the line, who knows? You may wanna edit this for that part <laughs> out, but that's the backbone. So you're not going to solve that as one company. You're not going to solve that as, as one digital technology or enabling technology. It's how do we bring those things together to collaborate and be focused on the same goals? Because we're developing medicines for everybody, you know, not just in the past. In the 70s, most trials were, were white males. Those drugs weren't just used on white males. We're developing drugs for everybody. So how do we make sure our population does that? And when we, we think of diversity, especially in the the mental illness and mental health capacity, when we think of stigma, yeah, you know, I, I can talk about in the black and brown community that mental health probably still has a very high level of stigma attached. So when you're thinking of clinical trials, making sure that it's for everyone, I would see that as a, as a huge obstacle just from a clinician standpoint to not necessarily allow for the patients yeah. to be in it, but actually encourage the patients in those communities to want to be part of something which they're already not wanting to discuss, whether it's with their provider, their family, their friends. Have you seen any of that impact your ability to run clinical trials? I think it's a really important point because, again, everything we do has a backdrop of history. And we do know in the not so recent past, there were exploitative clinical trials where individuals weren't consented. African-American subjects literally watching the natural history of, of syphilis. These things happened and they leave long lasting distrust and misunderstanding of what clinical trials are. So it's our responsibility as, as the ones who are, are working on these assets to make sure, number one, we explain clearly what we're doing. So consent actually has improved greatly with the use of animation, with the use of storytelling. It's actually night and day from the investigator sitting down with a piece of paper that was much more difficult. We also need to ensure that our researcher pool, our investigator pool is diverse as well. People sometimes want to hear it from someone like them who has a shared experience, who can understand their anxiety and where they're feeling from. So that's an effort we're working on as well. 
The other thing is, where do you outreach to educate patients about certain clinical trials? It's not always going to be an ad on Facebook or, you know, the way we recruit for an Alzheimer's study is probably a lot different than we did for the digital study in depression. You know, I'm sure the digital study in depression, we didn't have newspaper ads for ADA, but we did. So it's also trying to get people where they are, be, you know, is it their church, community center, things of that nature. So we've actually had approaches with sites of go to where the patients are. Don't expect them to find you. Now, measuring outcomes is also important. It's easy to say you're doing all these things, but you've got to continually monitor, are we actually in line with the expected demographics? Uh, and we do do that with each trial, and we learn from each trial as we go forward. Now, I might get you in trouble with this line of questioning here, but I'm going to go down. Oh, I think we're out this. of time. <laughs> <laughs> I think we squeeze one more in here. <laughs> you know, you talked about Atsuka being a 100-year-old organization, looking forward in the next hundred years, and I know it's not your decision, it's, it's, it's the leadership and, and everyone around you that's, that's, that's about this. But if you're looking at the evolution of Atsuka, in your view, knowing that this is just sort of your opinion around it, but I'm curious where you see it over the next hundred years. Because, I mean, if you look in other spaces, the consolidation that's happening in the vertical integration with insurance companies merging with you know, PBMs and retail pharmacies, and in your world of sort of the neurological space at Atsuka and some of the mental health disorders, I mean, as you pointed out, a lot of treatments are non-pharmacologic. So is Otsuka going to be a gaming company, a tech company, and a drug company? Like, what does that sort of package look like over the next 10, 25 years? Not a boring. We are identified <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's really exciting to think about yeah. the possibilities here, right? So when we talk about Otsuka, again, I'm in the pharmaceutical division of the company. So there's Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, which has many regions, but Otsuka's holdings is much broader. Mm -hmm. So we do have, from a holdings perspective, interests along the line. But from the pharmaceutical perspective, I think what will continue to happen is always looking outside, not always looking inside. Mm -hmm. If you begin to be insular and believe you have all the answers, you're going to atrophy. You're not going to grow. And I think a good example is we're running a, a study now in something called IgA nephropathy, a rare kidney disease, but probably more common than we think. But we actually are developing that asset in collaboration with a company, Otsuka Purchase, Vistera Biotech. And part of the reason for their purpose, yeah, they had a drug that looked really interesting, but they have a really creative and sophisticated protein biology platform, not just antibodies, but other protein conjugates that could be therapeutic agents. So it wasn't that let's see what they're doing and develop it all in-house. No, let's see if we can acquire and work with. The collaboration I talked about, Synovian, that, that's a collaboration. We're both putting in, in funds and research. But it is for the lead compound, Eulodorant, for schizophrenia, a non dopamine D2 drug for schizophrenia that may have some interesting benefits beyond what is available today. So that was another partnership or collaboration, I should say. So it's looking outside. We do have very good science inside as well, but that balance is important. And I think that's what has driven this success ever since Abilify to now, is that willingness to go beyond what you know. The investments we have in equity investment in Compass, for example, 
some work we're doing with mindset through our MSRD. In the psychedelic space, it's the same sort of thing. Can we collaborate and understand more? I think you figured out probably how to overcome the hardest part, which is building the culture inside that allows you to think the way you just talked about. If you can get over that, then the opportunities are abundant, right? In, in terms of what's in front of you. They are, but be critical. Do yeah. good due diligence because everything <laughs> Well, there's a lot of noise, <laughs> right? There's, there's a, a lot, lot of noise. noise in the marketplace right now, for sure. <laughs> no, John, I, I really appreciate your insight and hearing what Atsuka is able to provide to this specific space because I think often it is overlooked. And, and just as you stated it, making sure that you look outside to prevent atrophy really presents that that bridge of digital innovation that allows you to not be stagnant. So I was delighted to speak to you today, even though I'm still curious about what you guys spoke prior to getting on the mics. <laughs> but we would definitely love to continue this conversation next year to see what yeah. what else you've done in the last year. And I'm just glad that you spent time with us today here at the official Vive podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Good John. questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're still here, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We'll be releasing new episodes regularly. And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Live at Vive wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. This podcast is a product produced and mixed by Well Played Media in partnership with Health, the organizers of the annual Vive Conference. Remember to subscribe, and if you have an idea for a non-boring show in health or medicine, email us your idea at hello at wellplayed.health. Are you interested in seeing and meeting many of the guests we interview on this show? Be sure to check out viveevent.com and join us at next year's conference. See you next time.